So here you have a massive nation, which varies in size depending on who gives you the estimate. And here's a man who's trying to communicate to these people. They've just been rescued out of Egypt. They've just seen God do incredible things, bring darkness upon the land, turn, turn water into blood, pass through the waters of the Red Sea and not be harmed, and then watch them come crashing down upon Pharaoh's army. These people had watched the God of eternity thunder down on Sinai and given them a covenant. These people had participated in the false idolatry of worshiping the golden calf, and yet God had not cast them off. And they, in disbelief, had refused to trust God to enter into Canaan, the promised land, and now they're wandering around. And this generation has promised that they will not enter into the new land. These are the kind of people that Moses had on his hands. They grumbled when they didn't have water. They complained that the bread was not tasty enough. They were mean to each other. They were mean to Moses. They were faithless. And though they had seen the supernatural God of eternity enter into their space and time, it didn't seem to have a lot of bearing on the next day because they forgot all the time. They were faithless. They were unfaithful. They were murderers. They were idolaters. They were spiritual adulterers. And this helps us understand why Moses wrote what he wrote. These people needed to interpret what they had just come through. They needed the truths of who their God was to help them view their world properly in the present day. And as another generation would arise, a more faithful generation under the leadership of Joshua, and go into Canaan, into the promised land, they needed to know what to anticipate. And so, yes, this book is a book of history. This book teaches us much about what God has done in ancient history to bring about His sovereign purposes. But I want us, as we start this book, to realize that in some ways, this book was somewhat devotional. And what I mean by that is that Moses wanted the people of Israel to, to understand God and to trust Him. It wasn't merely to fill their heads with genealogies, with facts about creation. It was to call them to confidence in who their God was. And so, as Moses writes about creation and fall and redemption and restoration, these, these themes which predominate this book, it helps us understand what His purpose was. It was to call Israel to confidence and to faithfulness and to exclusively worship the one true God. Because of what Israel was facing, they desperately needed this rock solid, this bedrock truth to call them to confidence and to worship. So you can see, I hope, that trying to figure out some of these details of interpretation are in fact not superfluous. They're not unimportant. They're critical. And then as we come forward to today, they're, they're really critical as well because we're the same way. We tend to be faithless. We tend to be unfaithful. We tend to be spiritual adulterers from time to time. We are not that much different in some ways from the way Israel was. 
So the lens that Israel needed in in viewing their world and viewing their God, we need that same lens today, especially as we approach the beginning of the exposition of this book. We will get more into this over the next couple of weeks. I imagine that going through this first chapter of Genesis will take us about three weeks starting today. We're just going to cover the first couple of verses today. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take some time to look at one of the other sort of subsidiary things that Moses is trying to do in this first chapter, and that is he's trying to help the Israelites see that all the competing gods around them, the gods that they had seen worshipped in Egypt, the gods that they will see worshipped in Canaan, all those gods, they're concocted. They're not real, and they can't compete. And if they're not real and they can't compete, they they should not draw out the affections and worship of Israel. Israel should have affections for and worship the one true God and reject the false deities that predominate the region into which they are entering. Israel will also have the opportunity to, to reflect the greatness of the one true God to these pagan people to expose the fake deities they worship. We'll get more into that over the next couple of weeks. So, as I've already said, the events in Israel's history needed interpretation. That's why Moses wrote. And their future needed interpretation. They needed a lens through which to look at what they were getting ready to experience. And I think that's super important for us to today. I said to you a moment ago as we prayed for Blake and Wesley, I don't think it's a mistake under the sovereign wisdom of the Spirit that we are in this chapter today. How can a parent who is incredibly sad and fearful and worried and feeling very helpless have any confidence that their little child has hope? After all, if there is no God and we got here by chance, or if there is a God in the sky but He's capricious and does what He wants when He wants and He's kind of like eeny, meeny, miny, moe, how can you trust a God like that? So, if there's no God, where's our confidence? If there's God who has lots of power but no love, how can we trust Him? If there's a God who has all kinds of love but no power, how can we ever have confidence in such a God? What Moses proclaims to the people of 15th century near Canaan and to us today is that there is a God, and He's the one true God. And He is strong, and He is full of love. So I ask you to try to put that lens on as we come back to the book today, and listen humbly and carefully as we approach. The first thing I want us to see today is that our God is eternal. I wanted Greg earlier to read for us the entire chapter. And if you're like me, and I you know, tend to plan the liturgy, the order of the service, it's hard to listen to a whole chapter especially when you're standing and you're like, why am I standing and shouldn't I be sitting and this is, this is long and I already know this. It'd be better if we just like, you know, read this a little bit at a time because there's no way Lee's going to preach the whole thing at once anyway. Why is he doing that? But I, I wanted us to just listen to the whole chapter. And as I said to you last week, Genesis 1 and the first part of chapter 2, though I believe they record true scientific history, that's not primarily the focus that Moses had in writing them. So I'm going to say that again so I'm not misunderstood. 
I believe that what is recorded here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are true. But I think sometimes what we try to do is turn them into texts on biology or cosmology. And that's not primarily why they were written. As I've already said to you, the primary purpose of Moses' writing was to call people to their confidence in the one true God. As we have joked before, and maybe you don't think it's a joke, I think it's maybe a little bit funny, I don't think a 15th century Hebrew male, let's say maybe from the tribe of Levi, who hears Moses' first draft of Genesis would say to him, Moses, let's pause for just a moment. Just to clarify, whenever you say that God created the world in six days, what do you mean? Do you mean like six 24-hour periods? Do you mean six ages? Can you just clarify that for me? And were there like transitional beings from like before we came here? They were not asking these questions. These questions are much later for us as modern Enlightenment-level people. Now, I'm not saying, and I want to be I want to be carefully understood here. I'm not saying that these chapters have nothing to say about those things. And we'll cover more of that over the next few weeks. In fact, what I want to do is come down to the first part of chapter 2, and then we're going to evaluate varying views of how creation happened and how long it took and all that kind of stuff. So we'll do that at the end, I promise. But primarily what I want us to do is just be saturated in the truths of these chapters and why Moses wrote what he wrote. And what he's calling the people of Israel here too is to recognize who their God is because they desperately needed this. And the first thing he wants to say to them is that their God is eternal. So what did Israel need to humbly understand? That God was eternal. What do you need to humbly understand today, especially for those of you who want me to say what you're wondering about what I think about this text scientifically? You need to listen humbly. Because again, Moses' purpose was to call people to understand this text and primarily, even more importantly, to understand who their God was. Our God is eternal. Moses says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are certain things in the Bible that I think all of us wish we knew more about, right? Like, why doesn't the Bible say more about Jesus like infancy up to like 12 years old and then from like 12 years old to the beginning of his public ministry. Wouldn't that be interesting to know? You know, like I, this is probably silly, but I, I wonder like did Jesus from time to time just to like wow his brothers and sisters, did he like levitate tables? You know, what, what was it like to be around Jesus whenever you stole something and you didn't want Mary and Joseph to find out? Like did he tell on them? Um, did, did he just give them a look and they felt so guilty that they repented immediately? Um, I, I wonder about stuff like this. One of the most mind-boggling things in all of Scripture is, is how can it be that, that there is a being who created all things that we see, but who has no beginning? Like, I think it's easier to understand the fact that there's no end, but to think about the fact that there's no beginning, why, why didn't Moses say more about that? Why didn't God inspire him to say more about that? And we can wonder about that, and we can speculate as to what that was like and what it was like for God to be with Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, before there were even angels and anything to gaze at, anything to look at. What was that like? But I think Moses approaches these first words of this first verse, of this first chapter, of the first book of our Bible, and he just assumes. Why does he do that? 
Well, Moses wrote in a day, and again, we'll talk more about this as we come down through the chapter, but Moses wrote in a day where there were deities all over the place. We saw this as we studied Paul's book of Romans, his letter to the Roman church. In chapter 1, he essentially says that God displays himself in creation. But mankind doesn't want to deal with that. So what does mankind do? Mankind suppresses the truth. What they end up doing is they, they worship the created things. And if you think about it, if you look at every other major world religion some of which are monotheistic, but most of which are polytheistic, in other words, many gods. Isn't it interesting that all those gods tend to, in one way or another, have some of the foibles, the follies, the, the bad characteristics of humans? So, so this god that is a pagan deity, he's capricious. He likes you if you do what he wants, but if you don't do what he wants, he sends plagues or zaps you. We'll look at this more as we go through the chapter, but there was a Babylonian myth that a god named Marduk took a female god, he was male, a female god named Tiamat, and he conquered her, and then with her conquered body, made the heavens and the earth. Why are those gods like that? Why, why do they have those characteristics? Because those characteristics are the projections of fallen man back on their deities. Because that's who they are. That's, that's what they understand. And isn't it interesting, truly, that in many ways those gods that people worship look a lot more like Satan than they look like Yahweh himself? Here's a selfish God. Here's a God that uses His creation Here's a God that doesn't care about His creation. Well, who's like that? Satan is like that. And is it really any wonder that all the projections of all of fallen humanity on all their false deities look a whole lot like their father, the devil? After all, didn't Satan crave to be worshipped? That's why he came after Adam and Eve. And ever since, essentially, that's exactly what happened. And I think this helps us understand why Moses starts like he starts. Moses doesn't even entertain the idea that there are competing deities. And he just says, in the beginning, God. Our God is eternal. Why was this important for Israel? Well, Israel is very vulnerable. I mean, think about it. They come out of Egypt. They get some of their treasures. Like, the Egyptians are so sick of them. They give them some of their jewels and stuff give them some stuff to eat, and they're like, just get out of here. But Pharaoh, who was hardened by God, decides, I just lost my whole slave labor force. i got to go get them. So he pursues them. Of course, as we know the story, God rescues Israel through the Red Sea. It's kind of a symbol of salvation. Then he brings the waters of judgment down upon the Egyptians. But then Israel enters into the Sinai Peninsula, which is kind of like this desert area. And, and then eventually, of course, because of their disobedience, have to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. She, she was very vulnerable. Like, like, this was not a nation with incredibly trained warriors. This was not a nation that had amazing armament. This was not a nation that had great political and, and military leaders. That was not who Moses was. This was a nation that was vulnerable. This was a nation that, at least 
as she was initially constituted, was, was a very new nation. She didn't even have a home. She was wandering around. She was nomadic with no defenses. She didn't have grocery stores. She wasn't growing things in fields. Her flocks were insufficient to feed her. So her food came down in the form of wafers from heaven and quails from the sky. And God fed her with with water from rocks. Why did God do that? And why did God let it go on so long? I mean, it's one thing to experience a trial. I mean, none of us like trials. But some of us have faced trials of duration, and those are the really, really difficult ones because you wake up each morning and you're like, when, when's the sky going to brighten? When's this going to break? And Israel faced this for 40 years. But when Moses gave them the first book of the Pentateuch, and says to them that your God is eternal, this helped her remember that though she indeed was vulnerable, there was a God who fought for her. This helped her interpret why God did what He did in rescuing her from Egypt and Pharaoh's armies. It helped them understand how God could come down upon a mountain and give them a covenant and promise that He would keep His end of the bargain. It helped her understand that she didn't need to worry about food or water our defenses, because, because He would take care of her. He was the eternal one. She was new on the scene. She was vulnerable. God was not new on the scene, and God was unconquerable. Do you see how important this was for Israel? Do you see why Moses wrote this? And don't you think that we need these words today? We are vulnerable. Our lives, as Jared prayed a bit ago, are fragile. I think the difficulty often for us as Westerners is we don't feel that. We don't often feel very vulnerable, especially for those of us who sort of live in the isolated sort of bubble of the suburbs. As long as we have buying power, now we may not have much buying power as our neighbor, but as long as we have enough buying power, like we can pay rent, we can, we can put food on the table, we can have clothing, we have cars. I mean, all of us here today have at least those things. Don't you think in some ways that that those things sort of cloud our judgment? They they numb us to reality. We often don't feel very vulnerable. But then your baby gets sick. Or your marriage isn't going like you want. Or your job is lost. And what does God do in those moments? Now, He might be doing a hundred things. But one of the things that He's doing is He's helping you recognize your vulnerability. And that is uncomfortable, isn't it? One of the most uncomfortable things that we face is when we feel helpless. Watching these families struggle with their little boys in the hospital recently, one of the things sometimes as a pastor that I want to do is I want want to help rid them of their feeling of helplessness. And you can see it on their faces. And I think probably when I first began this, I would try to do that. I, I would try to reason with them and give them some sort of theological truth or proof text or random verse and help them not feel that way. But, but I can't take away that feeling. And frankly, I shouldn't. What I can do in those moments and what we can do as a church family in those moments is help them understand that though they are helpless, they have a God who is not. They have a God who is powerful and strong. Are you vulnerable? You're vulnerable today whether you think you are or not. 
And though Israel was nomadic and though Israel had no buying power for food or shelter or home, she was vulnerable. And she needed to be reminded of the eternality of her God, and so do we today. So is this chapter teaching us some things about science? I think so. But even more importantly, it's devotional, and it's calling us to trust our eternal God. The second thing I think that these first couple of verses teach us is that our God is sovereign. Notice that God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. Now, there are some very conservative scholars who believe that in verses 1 and 2, you find a general description of all of creation, that God made everything at once. And what you see then in verse 3 of chapter 1 down to the beginning of chapter 2 is just the working out of all of that. There are some people who perhaps approach this text and say that God just kind of got things moving here on this first day. Regardless, we see God just doing it. He didn't have competition. He didn't have help. The, the chaos that you see existing here in this day or in this period was, was kind of scary. We look at this and it's mysterious to us. But God made it that way. He wanted it to be that way in the beginning. I mentioned a bit ago this Babylonian legend of how things got this way and then how they moved to the next stage. In some ways, Moses probably wrote what he wrote here to stand against other creation myths of other religions so that Israel had their own story, a true story of how they came about and how everything around them came about. What Moses is saying to them is that, hey, Israel, everything you see around you and everything that you've experienced, your God made all those things. So our God is sovereign, which means that He's powerful. He doesn't have to answer to anybody, and He doesn't have to compete with anybody. We've already talked about the fact that God had seen, or God had shown His power in Israel, um, in, in Egypt, on behalf of Israel. God had rescued Israel from Egypt by showing His power. Interestingly, if you think about it, God sort of ironically brought chaos onto the land of Egypt. It's kind of like what you see here in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. There's chaos at the beginning of creation, and God will bring order to it, which we'll start seeing next week. But isn't it interesting that as God judges Egypt to rescue Israel, that He kind of decreates? He brings darkness and blood under the water and all kinds of swarming creatures and boils. God kind of decreates in Egypt. Why does He do that? Because Israel was in the midst of a pagan land where they had a sun god and a river god and fertility gods. There was a God for everything in Egypt. Why is God sort of decreating there? To show that all their false deities were just that. He was taking everything that Egypt believed in that had given rise to all of her false gods, and He just brings judgment on all of it. You know what He's showing? He's showing Egypt that you believe in false gods. And even more importantly, frankly, He's showing Israel all these gods that that your taskmasters believe in, I'm just going to bring decreation on them, and then I'm going to bring you out. 
So God in His sovereignty does what He wants when He wants. And again, as we'll see over the next several weeks, He's going to, out of the chaos, bring normal order. It's interesting here that that the, the deep, speaking of like the depths of waters, boy, that's really, really scary. It's kind of interesting as you come to the end of Revelation that there's no more sea anymore. Isn't that interesting? I, I don't know if we'll have oceans. Those of you who love the ocean and hope that you'll get like a house by the sea in, in the eternal state, I'm not telling you you won't get that. There's, probably, there's a lot of metaphor in the, in the end of the Bible. But it's interesting that, that God sort of takes away the, the terror of the waters. Have you ever been on the seashore during a storm like on the east coast when a hurricane is coming? It's scary. You can't control that. It, it's completely unconquerable. It cannot be harnessed. And though we look at verses 1 and 2 in Genesis chapter 1 and we say, oh, that looks scary, that looks mysterious, that looks chaotic. For God, it wasn't chaotic. He controlled every bit of it. It's interesting, if you think about it, that, as we'll see in just a few moments, that that's what Jesus is teaching His disciples in Mark chapter 4. Here He is sleeping on a boat and his disciples are completely freaked out at what they feel like is going to be their certain doom. And he wakes up and he tells the winds and the waves to be still, and they are. And they wonder at his creative power. But what that calls them to is absolute confidence in him. How could he do such things? Because he had done it from the beginning. He was there in the chaos, controlling it, and of course shaping it. We'll see more on that in just a moment. So here's a God who is in control of all things because He's eternal and because He's sovereign. Israel needed to hear that, and we need to hear that today as well. But this God is not just eternal. He's not just sovereign. This God is full of love. Do these verses say that? I, I think they hint at it. Let me show you how. We've already read today, Greg read for us, down in verse 27, that God made man in His own image, in the image of God. He created him, and male and female, He created them. Chapter 2 will bring more focus upon that. Chapter 2 really focuses on the centrality of God's chief creative work, that is, the creation of man. Here's what I'm saying. Genesis chapter 1 is a segue into God's focus upon His love for mankind. Genesis chapter 1 is really a depiction of the environment in which the image bearers will live. It sets the stage for the main story. And the main story is that there is a God, and He's full of power and is worthy of worship, but He is full of love, and He will love His people even when they rebel. We'll see that very clearly in chapter 3. So I think the very structure of this book and this chapter itself is moving toward an expression of love. And what I mean by that is God, God made the world to be an arena in which He could display His love. If it's true that God is eternal, that means that He'd always been without people. 
Why did he suddenly decide to, to make people? Was he bored? I mean, he had no beginning. God doesn't change. He doesn't get bored. Was he, was he not strong enough until this point? Did he have to like build his proverbial deity muscles to be able to pull this off? As we know from this chapter, he just speaks things into existence. It wasn't hard from him. He was sovereign. But God's eternal nature and His sovereignty and His love give rise to why He created in the first place. And the reason He created in the first place is that God Himself is love. John tells us that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. And do you know why He made the world? Do you know why He made you? He made the world to be a place that you could enjoy, an arena where you could physically live and move and have your being and enjoy Him and worship Him. Why did He do that? Because He loves. The world around us and you yourselves are expressions of a God who spills over all the time. Why does God like like that? Why, Why does He do that? It's His very nature. The Father has always loved the Son. And the Spirit and the Son return love to the Father. There's this mutual perfection in the love of the Trinity. And I know that's deep and I know that's hard to understand. And I'm going to say it more and more over the years. But in the nature of the Trinity itself, there is perfect harmony and love and fellowship and relationship and communion. Why does God create? Because He wants to spill that out upon other beings. That's amazing. And I think in some ways, it's not only hinted at down at the end of the chapter, because all the chapter is moving toward the end, right? It's moving toward the main message that God's going to create man. Yes, He made creeping things and livestock and beasts of the field and, and plants that bear seed and fruit trees that bear seed. He made all that stuff, but why? It was for man and woman. But I think it's hinted at even in verse 2. Notice that over the chaos, the Spirit of God is hovering. He's waiting in anticipation to bring all the chaos into order. Why? Because He knows that when He does that, all these new image bearers, and there had never been any before, all these new image bearers would have the opportunity to resonate with love and return it back to God. The Spirit of God was anticipating that and was eager to do it. I think subtly what we find here in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1 is is a hint at the Trinity. The Trinity itself is love, and the Trinity pours out love on each other and now upon us, and the Spirit of God was used as an agent to do that. But it wasn't just the Spirit. I think Jesus is hinted at here too. Let me prove that to you. In Psalm 33, the psalmist says, By the word of the Lord... The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. And by the word of the Lord, keep that in your mind for a moment. Turn with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 8. Throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon, in collecting all these wise sayings, 
sometimes personifies wisdom. That is to say, He takes wisdom and gives her human characteristics. She's a non-entity, but He personifies her to help illustrate her. He does that uniquely in Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 31, which has led many scholars to see something more than just literary personification. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me, speaking of wisdom, the Lord possessed me wisdom at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. It sounds like chaos to me. Before He had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to see its limits, so that the waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him like a master workman. I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Taking Psalm 33 together with Proverbs chapter 8, we come to John chapter 1. What does John say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. Remember, God created by His Word, not only in Genesis 1, but in Psalm 33. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And it was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. We'll talk more about light next week as we move into verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1. But it's pretty clear that God created through the Son, who was the Word, who Himself was wisdom, who was with God, and who was God. In Colossians chapter 1, which Greg referenced earlier, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. How do we know that God is love from Genesis 1, 1 and 2? Because all that that God created was for the purpose of His chief image bearers to, to enjoy Him. But it's also hinted at in those very verses themselves. Here's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And we know also the Son was with the Father, creating, manipulating, bringing order out of chaos. Why? So the image bearers could, enjoy, could know God and could enjoy Him. But as we know, and of course this is moving ahead a bit, this chaos would, would come in new ways. That is to say, the chaos that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is brought into order in the rest of the chapter. 
But in chapter 3, chaos comes again because of sin. But the one who brought order to the chaos, the Word of God, the Son of God, He is also bringing life and grace out of the chaos of sin. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 prove this. We also see this later on in Hebrews 1. But of the Son, He says, the Father says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The Trinity brought order out of the chaos. And the Trinity, and particularly the Son, brings order out of the chaos of our sinful world, and we hope in Him. So who was Israel's God? Israel's God was eternal. Israel's God was sovereign and had no pagan opposition. And Israel's God was full of love. Jesus, after His resurrection and being with some of the disciples, it is said of Him that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Pentateuch, Genesis being the first book of the Pentateuch, he began with Moses and all the prophets and interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Jesus began to cause His people, His disciples, to wonder at His person and His being. And I hope that one of the things that we see today and we will see throughout the book of Genesis is that our Savior is everywhere. We will love Him. But so what? What practical bearing does Jesus' power specifically over creation have in regard to my life? It's pretty clear that he was God's agent of creation, but so what? I've already referenced this, but turn with me please to Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? After some reflection, I'm sure that the disciples began to put two and two together. The one who had settled the chaos of Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The one who now was with them in the boat. He was the one who still was in control. The winds and waves obeyed him in the beginning and they still obey Him at this point. Israel needed to understand that God brought order out of their chaos and would be a Redeemer for them, just like He had always been. Creation proved that. The disciples needed that too. The disciples were going to face great trial. They would be hated, despised. Their lives were under constant threat. What comfort for them to know 
that despite the fact their very lives could be taken, their Savior was in absolute and complete control. And don't we need that today? The one who gave sight to the blind, the one who made the lame walk, the one who raised people from the shackles of death, what do I need to fear if He's my Lord and my Savior? Nothing can harm me if He doesn't allow it. Nothing is out of His control. The universe is sustained by the word of His power. And in Him all things hold together. I can trust Him. This gives us comfort when babies are sick and helpless. This gives us comfort when we're persecuted and under trial. I've already said to you that we never feel quite so helpless as we do when our children are sick. I, my younger son, Sam, has had a really high fever for a few days. And so I prayed with him last night, and we prayed that God would take his fever away. So late last night, I went and I checked him, and his fever was down. He woke up, and um, I talked to him, and I said, I said, buddy, God took your fever away. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's cute. Like, that's what a father says to a little boy, and he's six, and so that's kind of, you know, really cute. But I meant that. You know what I want my six-year-old to believe when he's 12 and 18 and 30? You know what I want him to believe? I want him to believe that Jesus takes away fevers. I want him to believe that Jesus can heal marriages. I want him to believe that Jesus is his source of delight, and Jesus is the one who controls his existence. I want to teach him that now. Jesus takes care of the small things, and Jesus takes care of the big things. And it's my responsibility to teach him that. So Israel needed it. The disciples needed it, and we need it. So our God is eternal, and it calls us to absolute confidence. Our God is sovereign. There's no one who stands against Him, and He controls everything. But He uses His eternal sovereignty to demonstrate and to take care of me because He loves me. Let's read together from Psalm 33, and we'll close today. I think this is a fitting final expression of how we should respond to this text. Here's how the psalmist responds to what he sees God doing around him. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. He, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, 
on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The psalmist saw that God's creative power was a demonstration of his love, and it meant that the psalmist, of course, we ourselves, can trust him. So our eternal sovereign God is full of love, and we have every reason to trust him today. That's the message, I believe, that we should draw from these first couple of verses in Genesis. So as a response to all this, we'll sing in just a moment doxology. I don't think we have a lyre or a harp today, but we will sing nonetheless. But I do want to call you to response today. In a few moments, you'll have an opportunity in the back to respond by giving your resources in the box. I, as always, want you to respond to each other by loving each other. Um, pour out your love on each other today. And for those who are not with us, some are very needy. I ask you to reach out to them today. But specifically, what I'd like you to do this week is to think carefully about how you can speak to someone who needs to know the truth about your eternal, sovereign, loving God. Who comes to mind when I say that? could be a Christian who's struggling right now could be a Christian who's wandering. I hope that perhaps you are thinking about a person who has not followed the one true God. Maybe they know nothing about Him. Maybe they reject Him. Or maybe they don't like Him. Maybe they're confused by Him. Who's somebody that you can go speak to about these three things that we've seen in the text today? That God is eternal and He's sovereign, but He tempers that by His love. And everything that he's done for you is an example of that. Who could you speak to about that this week? I challenge you to be prayerful, even as we sing this last song, about who God might want you to talk to this week about these truths. So let's stand. The guys will come. We'll sing doxology together.